A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 110 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the name Skywalker, rising up in hot spots across the galaxy, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan Hot spots. Are you making fun of the week that I've just had, son? (laughs) (laughs) We've had some uh, serious uh, weirdness this week, especially you, man. Yeah, I was, uh, for those who don't know, I am based out of the Atlanta area. Thankfully, the southwestern metro area, which thankfully is not, uh, of of all the different corners of the metro, it's, it's the one that's least... Uh, traffic heavy, I guess you could say. You know, Atlanta's population literally doubles every day when people go to work and then it gets cut again back in half as soon as everybody leaves. It's a very car-centric commuter metro area with a god-awful public transit system that people just don't want to use that doesn't really reach everyone. Um, So, yeah, I was part of the Hothlanta 2 stuff when basically Atlanta got shut down by, like, two to three inches of of snow. Though, in our defense, the area has incompetent leadership, you know, so you knew it wasn't gonna happen. In in 2011, the last time we got hit by snow, we only had four uh, snow sand trucks, and uh, two of them wrecked into each other on the way out of the parking lot, so we actually only had two in 2011. Um, Snowplow foul. Yeah, snowplow smashing. Um, I think there was something like 40 of them this time, but they pre-treated just barely on some of the roads, and then um, everybody kind of like left businesses and schools and everything at the same time. So there was extreme traffic in this crap weather. Uh, and granted, down here, it's, it's wet snow. So it's not really snow snow where you get some traction. It's basically just ice everywhere. Um, and the, the snowplows couldn't get to the freaking roads because the traffic built up so quickly, there was no way for them to get there. So by the time it was done, I mean, we had people trapped for 24 hours sitting in cars in the middle of traffic lots of cars abandoned all over the place um my wife bless her heart went down to work three hours early trying to miss the snow with a bag to stay overnight with a friend of hers in case she couldn't get back and still went off the road twice in the mustang on the way down there to work um and then got stuck down there for tuesday night and wednesday night uh, leading into Thursday, so she could finally be able to to, to come home for the weekend, essentially. Now, um, it was just it was really rough. I had colleagues who were stuck at schools. Thankfully, not me. Um, stuck at schools, basically playing babysitter because they couldn't get the kids out of the schools. So in this area, it was something like two thousand students total wound up in places where they were sleeping at the school with teachers and principals acting as 
chaperones because they needed wow. someone there and they couldn't get out of there. There was a bus for the, the school that a lot of our students went to recently. A few years ago, they split our school because it was getting so big and it, there was a new school that opened up. There were students uh, from that school trapped there. You have there was a charter school around the area where students were stuck, had to be saved by the National Guard because their bus was stuck, um, couldn't get out of it. There was even a charter school around the area where the students were trapped on a bus for hours, wound up needing the National Guard to help get them out of there to a safe place, uh, by which point they'd been there for hours and turned the back three seats of the bus into toilets. Um, this oh. area was just slammed and shut down by what should never have happened because they don't prepare for it. They don't plan for this sort of thing down here. So, yeah, yeah, funny, funny, funny. Um, but, man, talk about suckage. Thankfully, no new health problems or anything cropped up. Uh, everything was kind of steady as she goes uh, as far as uh, my wife was concerned during this mess. Stuck, yes, for a few days, but no new health things uh, cropping up. So, you know, thank goodness for that. Wow. You know, we got hit right the, uh, I'd say mid-December with a storm like that, and it dumped so much snow. I had snow all the way up until the first uh, week or so of this year. I mean, and we never have snow in, in December time. I mean, the hills and stuff do, but, you know, the, due to the fact that the hills and stuff, the summits for I-5 and stuff always have it, that we've always got chains available and stuff. But yeah, you guys aren't even equipped for stuff like that. Like, you guys didn't have anybody selling chains or handing chains out. Nobody would even think to have chains in the car. I mean, you don't see snow in three years. Why carry chains? Oh, exactly, exactly. And it's, and it's funny because, I mean, the school system was uh, announced on its Facebook page. Schools are released at 145. Well, that's lovely and all, except, see, you can't send buses to every school at once because elementary, middle, and high school share the same buses. So we didn't get out until, you know, two hours later. Um, only come to find out that apparently our superintendent uh, went and checked his kids out at 11:30. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, heads that are going to roll in this area. I would imagine over the whole debacle. But suffice to say, um, yeah, it has been some crazy times. So hot spots, huh? Yeah, yeah, not so much recently. Although I will say, as soon as the snow was gone, as soon as she was able to get back up here, uh, the very next day was basically t-shirt weather again. So <laughs> welcome to Atlanta. Wow. Talk about bipolar. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough question. This episode, we explore Dark Horse Comics' legacy, issues 23 through 26, covering loyalties and the Hidden Temple. Why? good old favorite john ostrander now before we get too deep into spoiler territory we'll give you our quick spoiler free rundown just be sure to jump off at tarkin's arrogance that's right this is basically volume five if you're reading in trade paperback form here two different two issue story arcs loyalties and the hidden temple and really it's a lot like what we saw with uh, volume four alliance recently and remember the whole point of this and of looking at rebellion and dark times and looking at knights of the old republic recently is to see how the build-up worked getting towards vector so we can then look in depth at the vector crossover slash cross through and see whether it lived up to its promise 
of being a game changer for all these series and sending them off in new directions and whether they fit organically into the storytelling of the series themselves. This is our very last episode where we're going to need to talk about something to lead up to Vector so that we can talk about Vector very, very soon. Um, this is the last pair of arcs prior to Vector showing up in the Legacy series, so you would expect this to be kind of a transitional piece, and really it is. Um, volume 4 had Indomitable, The Wrath of the Dragon, and Into the Core, and that was basically, you know, what's going on with Gar Stasi and the Alliance Remnant? How are they going to set up for them to be willing to work with uh, the Empire, Rowan Fell's Empire against Darth Krait's Empire, and filling in some of the gaps about the Battle of Kamas with a whole bunch of flashbacks. Then we got Wrath of the Dragon, the whole idea of genocide against the Mon Calamari and how they're being sent to work camps. He wants to wipe them out from the galaxy, etc., etc. Then Into the Core uh, jumped ahead a few issues. It actually comes in the original series after the ones we talk about this time. Um, that was basically sort of the, the search for a way to save Darth Krait from the Vong things that are eating away at him. But it was all sort of connecting Claws of the Dragon forward into what's coming with Vector in the case of the non-major characters, because usually the major character stories, that is, Cade and the crew of the Minoc, those stories get taken care of still by Ostrander, like those were, but with art by Jan Dersima, and each of those had filler artists. So the good news is, what we have here is four issues in one trade paperback that is the dream team, so to speak, of Legacy. It's still Ostrander, but now Jan Dersima is back for all four issues. We get two issues, that uh, the loyalty storyline, I think that was a pretty good one because, again, it's another of these ones where, yeah, it's transitional, it's leading us from point A to point B, but in the process of it, we learn more about this universe. We learn more about this era of Star Wars, particularly with some characters that were only hinted at back in Legacy Number Zero. Bantha Rock is mentioned in Legacy Number Zero. I think he gets an entry. I think he doesn't get an entry until number one half. Um, but he's been mentioned. We know it kind of ties into where Cade got his weapon from, but then that's about it. Now we finally get to know a little about him, about the background of the Skywalkers of this era, a little bit more about uh, the childhood for Cade and so on. And then we get the Hidden Temple, which not only gives us the Hidden Temple, which is sort of a whatever happened to any Jedi who survived type of story, but also gives us, albeit briefly, a quick explanation for why it is that Jiraiya Sin hates the Jedi so much, as we've seen throughout this series, but never got a lot of detail when it came to an explanation. Uh, and by the time these two story arcs are over, by the time this trade paperback is over, I will say I really do feel as though we're ready for the events of Vector. Um, it didn't feel that way with small victories from Rebellion. It didn't really feel that way with Dark Times. But KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic, and Legacy definitely leave you with the sense that big things are coming as we head towards the Vector issues, which is nice. It really feels like this is going to matter in this story here. Mm. Well, you almost get the feeling like maybe KOTOR and Legacy were like the original two they were plotting on, and then they were like, hey, well, let's just kind of spread this out, and we can add Vader and Luke in here as well. I, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a disconnect when we get to Vector when it comes to how much time was spent on each of those series as well, and it seems like the beginning and the wrap-up get the most focus, but you know, this art going in, I, it's a very much, like you said, the last one with Alliance. Um, I would not suggest this one do the first time reader. This would be one where I would say, you know, I, I don't even think you're going to get very much out of this on your first read because there's a lot of stuff that you're not 
quite going to understand a lot of terminology, especially when it comes to, to Nat Skywalker. There's a lot going on with him that they just expect you to understand what the heck he's talking about. He, he keeps referring to kids as kits, uh, K-I-T-S and stuff like that. And little things like that, that, that it's just assumed that you know what they're talking about. And then once you've read it all and you go back, then you're like, oh, okay, you know, I, I got it all. It, it was kind of like reading Zahn's Heir to the Empire trilogy for my first time. You know, I was reading through it, not quite understanding a lot of stuff and just kind of plowing through it. And then on my second read, I was like, okay, I've read a few more books. I had an understanding of what the terminology meant. And, and there's a lot of that building up in this. And, and in this case, it's one of those, I've got these in singles. And this is one I would suggest, you know, you're probably better off trying to track down the singles than you would even the trade paperback because of the fact that the letters, uh, the little letter to the editor or in the back has these little uh, dictionary things for all the Huttese going on and stuff. Because Cade's character especially is swearing up the wazoo, using Huttese up the wazoo. And there's a lot of times you're like, okay, what's he saying? And you can go in the back and you can actually figure out what it is because it's translated. And that was a really cool feature that I actually I rely on pretty heavily. I constantly I'm bouncing back and forth to the two. It's almost like when you read uh, Karen Travis's stuff and you go back to the back appendices that she would put in there and read the Mando uh, to learn the Mando aid and stuff. So I like those little t- attentions to detail, but I really got more out of this the more I reread it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of these subtle connections and stuff to the events that you don't realize are all happening at the same time. Like, like you're quick to point out you know i mean that there's a moment where you know they talk about dak and then they then they're all of a sudden they're watching you know everything that happened in the last uh, alliance and stuff you know what happened with the mon cal there and you're literally watching it as it's happening but if you weren't really paying attention on your first time through you may not quite understand what you're seeing in that regard uh, so, you know, it, it's one that I would definitely say, you know, if you're taking the trip down legacy, which I highly, highly recommend you do, then yeah, you're going to enjoy it, but definitely you'll enjoy it more on the reread. Don't just go out and grab this one and just start perusing through it. There are a few out there that you could do that with, but this one, I, I don't think you'd serve the comic as well as it would on a reread. You're going to get the most out of it on that reread. I love the fact though, that we got all these little tiny attentions to detail. Uh, I was sharing some pictures and stuff on our Facebook page today. I mean, it, I, I'm pretty sure that, that Jariah sin gives us our very first star, uh, star Wars menstrual cycle joke. Uh, <laughs> some little things like that. There's the fact that, uh, Cade Skywalker in the last few, uh, arcs was kind of like a, a, a male slut and, and, uh, Delilah blue is pretty upset with him. And, and that was kind of a running gag as well. Uh, you know, Cade, what's going on with him? Uh, you know, there's just so much stuff going on here that, that, again, if you were to just grab this, you would be so lost as to what in the heck is going on. You may recognize certain names if you've read things from the uh, the uh, the Clone Wars era. You know, I mean, you've got uh, Asherard Het's name comes up. You've got uh, uh, Alana or not Alana. Uh, Tasana T or something like that. The Netty Jedi, she shows up and they mention Thalm and Kakruk again shows up. I mean, there's a lot of those connections that go back to it. And I remember when I was reading through this, I was really thinking, you know, I mean, Cade, he throws out some serious accusations about assassination, you know, and that the Jedi should do it. And there was a part of me that was thinking, you know, maybe the Jedi Council would agree with that. Because, I mean, there was one whole side that was like, you know, you've got two Jedi on this high council here that served during the Clone Wars with Asherard Het. One of them actually fought side by side and back to back with him. I mean, who better to go up against him than say Kakrak? I mean, I, I really kind of thought that that was what they were going to do. They were going to be like, you know what, Cade Skywalker, you need to bow down. We're going to send one of our own after this. This is a Jedi problem and we're going to take care of it. But that wasn't the direction they went, which at the time I wondered if that was going to be a mistake. 
but it works. I mean, as we'll get into later with the vector and beyond, I, I really think that the the dragging out this process, some people may not have enjoyed it as much, but I really think it works. I think it adds to the character. It gives you a lot of background information about his family, the uh, internal struggles of the Jedi, and a lot actually surprisingly about Cole and his brother, Nat. I mean, I, I, I found myself more intrigued, especially on the rereads about Nat's character. I mean, there's a couple of flashbacks where you see a young him. You find out that for a while he even was raising Cade, uh, you know, during the war and stuff, and that while the war was going on, he was helping build the uh, secret hidden temple, and the fact that his own brother and his nephew both presumably died in the war was very bitter for him, and the fact that he dropped the Skywalker name, there were so many things about that character that I wanted to know more about. Uh, you know, and, and we get a little bit more, but not enough to really satisfy my my thirst there. I mean, you know, it, for me, I, I want to tie it together. I want to know, you know, is Nat and, and Cole, are they Ben's children? Are they his grandchildren? I mean, we still don't know those things. I, I honestly, I think logically, logically, I think we're looking at children here. I mean, you, you think about the fact on the EU side of things, how old, you know, Luke was when he had a kid, how old Ben was at the time of Crucible, and he still hasn't had kids and or a love interest at this point. So I'm assuming he's going to have kids a little later in life. So if these are his grandkids, they're pretty dang old. I mean, either Ben's kid got someone knocked up at a very young age, or logically it stands that these are Ben's kids. And if they are, I'm fine with that because Nat's got the blonde hair of Luke and Cole's got the red hair of Ben and Mara. So, I mean, it works out in that regard. They don't have to tie it, but I would like that clarification at some point. I don't, I don't understand why they've been so hesitant to say that, especially now as we're working into a you know an era where episode seven, eight, nine could possibly you know knock some of these elements out. It's like, why not just solidify it right now? What's it going to kill the EU? I mean, couldn't kill it any more than what we could possibly be getting down the road. But Again, you know, like you said, the dream team, you know, you got Jan here, you've got John doing the storytelling, great stuff all the way through. The Hidden Temple was intriguing in and of itself, the fact that it's a, a kind of conglomerate of uh, different, I don't know if they were castaway ships, I mean, they seem to function. Uh, when we get to the cover of 25, especially, you see it kind of like flying out of the uh, cavern, although it kind of looks like it's flying in, but it was a definite weird design, not something I was expecting, but I liked it. It, it had a uh, kind of like a, a Pirates of the Caribbean uh, 4 kind of feel to it, although Pirates of the Caribbean came out afterwards, but for those of you that have seen the movie, kind of gives you that feel of the uh, pirate island and how all the you know, the ships and stuff were all tied together. I don't know. I, I really got a kick out of it. I do think it's a definite reread one. I, I don't know if I would just say, hey, if you find this one, grab it, read it. It's a must read. It is a must read, but only if you're taking the journey. You know, this is one you can wait. If you haven't read the stuff that came before it, hold off. I think you'll enjoy it more. And if you get through it and you're still kind of like, eh, I don't know, keep reading on and come back and reread it. I think you're going to get a heck of a lot more out of it on the second time through. Yeah, plus we got to keep in mind the way this all fits together. I mean, remember, this is the era in which a lot of issues are overlapping with each other. Uh, at least some of, uh, say, uh, gosh, what was it? Uh, Into the Core has some bits uh, that tie into events we see with Indomitable because they're happening right after Claws of the Dragon. You've got uh, Wrath of the Dragon has the broadcast about what's happening to Mon Calamari, which shows up in loyalties, but it only shows up in loyalties part two, as I recall. So it's something that's, you know, it's going to be a little bit tricky to read these issues. But kind of think of this the way that, I mean, I hate to make the comparison because, boy, were they ponderous. But the last two books released of Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, you have basically way too many characters to keep track of. And you could either do individual issues 
that only showed a little of what was happening with each one, or you can essentially spend some issues telling one story or one group of character story, another group of issues telling other character stories, and then, yeah, they're going to have some overlap. Like with, as I said, the last two books in that series so far had one group of characters for the fourth book, and then for the fifth book it was another group of characters until you got almost near the end, and then it finally started bringing them in from both. There was a little bit of overlap there in order to make it manageable to cover that many characters. Granted, this series doesn't have nearly as many characters to keep track of as that series does, but you've got Cade and his group, you've got what's going on with the Galactic Alliance. At this point, our characters in general haven't come together into one cohesive alliance against the Sith. So you have to cover them somehow. So just be, be aware, whether you're reading in trade paperback form or if you're reading as individual issues, that this is kind of a muddy, say, 10 issues or so, where it's all important stuff, it's cool to see how it's transitioning, they do play off of each other, but you're not reading necessarily in chronological order here. You're reading as it makes sense to tell the story of each individual group of characters. And this trade paperback is certainly served well by being the four issues of these eight or so that do focus on Cade, Jiraiya, Delia, and what's going on with them. Well, for the fact that Cade shows up, I mean, he has a strong role in it, and yet at the same time you get to feel like he's not exactly the focus of it, which I thought worked well. It was like, this is an ensemble piece, and even though he was there, and it did move his story forward, it did so without leaving anyone else behind, whereas the other Cade-focused ones kind of did. I mean, you know, Sin was left behind, Blue was left behind, and, you know, yeah, you kind of saw where they were going, but they weren't the focus. It was all focused on him. Now they're back together in that group, and so it works that they're all having their story progress at the same time. And like you said, those, those side characters like Nat, Bantha Rock, and, and you know, Kakruk, and what's going on with the Jedi, and the fact that the Jedi aren't as shattered as we thought they were. You know, and plus you get these really cool insights into the Imperial Knights and stuff as well. So I, I, I don't know. I, I like it. I, I just, I don't think I would say, you know, hey, go out, grab this one, and just read it right off the shelf if you haven't touched anything. That would definitely be one I would steer you away from. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders Ascensions of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the film. And that brings us into issue number one. Uh, probably not nearly as much detail needed this time around, but... What we have here is we pick up with uh, Rav's Crimson Axe, right? Rav, the pirate that they had worked for previously here, the one that wound up turning over Jiraiya and Delia to the Imperials so that they could be used uh, as basically a test for Cade. Remember the whole thing about they had the Vong Gross on them and Cade had to use his healing dark side abilities to help them and all that back in Claws of the Dragon. Cade and Jiraiya and Chak and Key are there to basically... Uh, get some payback, in a sense, here. Um, the Imperials had given Chak and Key's ship, the Grinning Liar, over to Rav, so Cade, as a way of paying those two back, is there to make sure that they can get their ship. He breaks out a lightsaber, takes out some of Rav's goons, and basically forces Rav to give them back the ship and to make essentially what amounts to a blood oath type of thing uh, by the bloody bones. I swear I will be true and loyal to you, or forfeit will be my life. Uh, basically the same thing that anybody who works for Rav is supposed to take to him. We very quickly, though, get the sense that Rav 
is not a guy who takes these oaths very seriously because he immediately contacts Lady Malady, the Sith Lord, um, and basically says, hey, you know, he was here, he's leaving, etc., etc. Uh, and we see in the background during that conversation on Malady's end, Talon, who apparently does get more than a healing trance, uh, and Darth Nil, both in back to tanks, uh, based on what happened in Claws of the Dragon and based on the instructions, kind of, because of Talon not being just in a healing trance, uh, the instructions given by Crate uh, when we last saw Nil and Talon near death uh, very recently in the previous trade paperback. So the Grinning Liar whole situation worked out very, very quickly. Uh, and this is really one of the few times in this entire arc that we get to, get to see what the Sith are doing. Um, in this case, just the contact there with Malady. Malady will wind up playing more of a role, of course, as the series progresses. But here's our one real quick check-in with them. Everything else with the Sith, for the most part, within this arc seems to be sort of them at arm's length. Really, action at arm's length. We get this beat-em-up here in, in the Crimson Axe. But for the most part, these four issues are not very action-intensive. But at least, you know, it kicks off right off the bat with... You know, dealing with some issues, getting them out of the way. Okay, Chuck can go do his thing. Key can do, go do her thing. It frees up the trio on the Minoc with R2-D2, I guess, being a quartet um, to move along in their merry little way. Well, and it also stresses the fact that that Cade is swinging very heavily towards darkness. Um, I like the fact that it kind of pays an homage to Empire Strikes Back when Luke shows up in Jabba's court. I mean, they, they do a whole play up of Rav being, you know, a retired pirate and yet still like the king of his domain. So you get that feeling like, you know, now he's like the gangster. Uh, but when they show up, I love the fact that, you know, Cage just like flat out, you know, we owe, you know, I owe them. We're going to, we're going to settle some accounts, you know, and then he, he goes off and he starts telling him, you know, was he goes, you seize check and, and keys ship. The grinning liar to which you had no right. You're going to give it back. Ha! I should be rewarding you, Naxie. Black Sun's got a price on Kay's hide so high it nearly made me weep. And they're not the only ones. As for the grinning liar, the imps gave me the ship for services render. I own it like I own you, Cade. Lad, show this wormo what I think of his threats. And Cade, like, he's got like this sneer and he goes, you have no idea how I was hoping you'd say that. And his lightsaber ignites and then he spends the next, oh, what, we got five panels here? It, one of the panels shows Rav like in total look of panic, but I mean... Cade single-handedly is wiping out everybody there with the lightsaber. And even Cree, uh, Key mentions it. She goes, Captain, Cade's gotten dangerous. Tell me, Sin, doesn't all this Force stuff make you nervous? And he's like, new glad, just glad the captain's on our side, mostly. And, you know, the fact that after it's all done, Cade comes up to him and he sticks the lightsaber in his face. And, you know, of course, Rav's still trying to claim power. You know, quite a show. If you wanted a death stick that bad, Cade, all you had to do was beg nicely. And he's holding the lightsaber and he's got this, like, look like I'm going to stab you through the chest. He's like, you betrayed Sin Blue to the Empire and the Sith. You betrayed me. Sin and I were part of your crew, Rav. I don't beg from you. Never again. Going to kill you now. And, of course, then he pulls out the death sticks. I could still be a use, you know, and, uh I mean, again, that's when Cade just gets violent. And he just grabs him, and he's like, I remember the good old times, Rav. You scribed us all with your mark. The cursed bloody bones and made us swear an oath to you. You demanded loyalty but gave none back. Your turn, Rav. Say the oath. Swear it to me, or you will be wearing my mark. And that's when he starts you know, doing the force. I mean, it's almost like he's doing Shatterpoint on him. At this point, he's using his healing ability in reverse thanks to something his dad taught him, which they'll 
cover in one of the next issues. But of course, then, you know, like you said, he says flat out by the bloody bones and stuff, which when it gets that next scene, I love the fact that they talk about the fact that he used that trust. You know, he's just like, uh, and there's another thing before they get to Rav selling him out, you can see in the background Aslan Ra, but you don't know it's her. She's in the mask. She's standing in the background, and then they show up, uh, up close, and you see her face, and you're like, who is this? And they don't mention it at first, but they do in the very last page of the issue. So I like the way that played up. It was like just subtle enough where you're like, okay, who is that? And then you don't see anything else about that person for no- another couple pages and so. But when it goes to the Sith... This I like because it's kind of like, you know, it's focusing on Malady, but as the series progresses on, Malady from this point starts taking more and more kind of responsibilities among the Sith because both the hands are, are kind of out of commission. And I like how she goes, you understand that any future knowledge of Skywalker you may acquire is to be shared only with me. And then she continues, I am transferring credits to your account to initiate our relationship. More will follow as information warrants. Death will follow if you prove unfaithful. And of course, then he says the same thing. By the bloody bones, I swear I'll be true and loyal to you or forfeit my life. But the fact that, you know, he was, when if they first started all, he, he's talking about, you know, bad fortune that I could not keep him here for you. It's true. But I expect he'll return given our renewed understanding. A trust I can put at your service, Lady Melody. And she goes, I found a bond of trust is a useful tool. And I like the fact that they're using Cade's trust that he now had, Rav swear to him, Rav's now using that trust to feed information to the Sith. I mean, it just proves he's just a pure pirate through and through. I mean, he was a cool-looking character, and you kind of liked him, but the way he comes across on page, he is a despicable character. I mean, he's a loathsome guy. By the time you get to that point, you're just like, okay, just kill him already. You know, you just want him to be gone. But when they get to Bastion, there's a moment with Emperor Fell where he's talking about the fact that he had Skywalker and let him slip through his fingers. And he goes, I should have had Skywalker enlisted, incarcerated, or embalmed. He's too much of a wild card. I will not make the same mistake twice. And I don't know, it, it, it struck me as odd that, you know, he, he was thinking about actually enlisting Skywalker. I'm like sitting there in my head as I was thinking about that on the reread. I'm like, would Skywalker even be down for that? Or would he just be like, chica this? Well, I like what Rav, he's just, it, it, Definitely shows you how much you can trust the guy when he's going to swear loyalty oaths to two people within the span of probably about five minutes. Uh, neither of which he necessarily is going to keep unless it's in his best interest financially or in terms of survival. Uh, so he's kind of like any of these other characters. You know, you can't necessarily trust a bad guy to keep his word, but you can certainly trust the bad guy to work in the bad guy's interest. Um, but yeah, that jumps us over to Bastion. Basically, Rowan Fell is going off to Ganner Krieg about how he shouldn't have let leave as you were saying there um it's interesting to me i mean yes it's it makes sense you know he either needs to get Cade with them needs to keep him out of play or should have killed him he's too much of, a, of an of an issue i don't know if he was really thinking about enlisting outside of just saying you know here work with me which you know might have worked given the fact that you know Cade had you know he had saved the life of marisee i mean that was that whole no one dies for me never again kind of stuff kicking into play and whatnot we do get to see... Real quick, that- I want to touch on something that you're saying there. In the later issue, they also talk about uh, when Aslan Ra talks about leaving the Imperial Knights, They, uh, I believe it's uh, Mar- Marisha? Is that how you say her name? The, the Empress? Uh, yeah, Maris, Marisia or Sia, and she's Aslan Ray. Okay, so Marisia is talking to her, and she said only one Imperial Knight had ever left and turned his back on the vows, and he didn't live very long after that, which was kind of like, oh, once you're an Imperial Knight, you're there for life. So that aspect of enlisting him is kind of like, 
kind of slick. Like, okay, you're enlisted. There's no way out. You're serving me now. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, I think it's issue uh, 25 or maybe even 26 where that, that comes up. And the Empress is pretty much throwing that in Ra's face. And it's like, well, you know, I know what my oaths are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we, we immediately see in this issue that the oaths are kind of a sort of thing at times. Because even Maricia Fell here is, you know, she's there with Antares Draco. And, of course, we know that he loves her. She loves him back. And basically, you know, she's like, yeah, you're conflicted about the whole duty and loving me thing. But, uh, yeah, screw it. I'll deal with my dad and we're not going to stop. You know, it's sort of that sense of, you know, he's the one who's not willing. It's, it's sort of the reversal of, uh, in a sense, the roles of Anakin with Padme. He's the one thinking about duty here. She's the one thinking about acting on her impulses. Although at least this, I got to say... They're both Imperial Knights. They've been serving together. They've known each other for a very long time. They're both around the same age. This whole, you know, they're they want to they're they're in love with each other thing, and yet there's duty separating them. But they're gonna, you know, issue their duty to still try to be together, kind of thing. Ridiculously, hugely, hugely more believable than the whole Padme Anakin thing, you know, because it, he may be able to say, you know, I've loved you since I was nine going on 10 years old, but she certainly couldn't say it back unless Padme's pedophile. <laughs> well, and, and I, I do like, like you said it, you know, she goes, I know my father, my guess is these are his orders. I know you, I know the feelings you have for me as well as your sense of duty and you're conflicted. I am not, I have no intention of letting my father run my personal life. I'll deal with my father. And that's when she gives him the kiss. You deal with this. It's like, don't worry about anything else. You just worry about this. And he's like, see, I'm, I'm not sure we can. She goes, I am very sure. Now let's go see where my father wants to send us. And I like the brazenness on her end. I mean, even, even when she's doing all that stuff, you know, and he first shows, he first starts talking to her. She's like, I'm fully recovered master Draco. And I have completed both my training and my trials. I am an Imperial Knight now, and you will treat me as no less. Uh, and, you know, I mean, here in a minute, by the time the series is over, she's going to be the Empress herself. And the fact that Fel, you know, her father, Roan, was also an Imperial Knight. I like the fact that, that they were trained in that regard, that they are, you know, expected to kind of serve even though they are royalty. Like, I like that. And that was something I was always kind of hoping that after Crucible with Sword of the Jedi, we would see something with Jaina. I was really, really hoping that Jaina would be the founder of the Imperial Knights. Uh, and and I would I was just kind of, you know, wanting to know where this sense of, of, you know, serving the Emperor to serve the Force, where that came from, and the lightsaber aspect. I mean, you know, we talked in past issues about how all the, the Imperial Knights seem to have silver lightsabers, although in this one, their lightsabers are all kind of more uh, bluish white, which later, you know, they're all that same bluish white. So I, I don't know if like somewhere along the line, they decide to make them a little more blue than just the whitest silver they started out as, because I was always under the impression that Ronefell had a white silver one and thus all the Imperial Knights did. And Saya or Sia had her own one that was blue. And once she became Empress, then all of them switched to blue. But now I'm not so sure. Now I'm just kind of wondering, like, hey, do they just decide somewhere along the line, hey, we'll just shift the tint or what? Because there's so much about the Imperial Knights that even though they're, they're a lot on the page here, their history isn't. You know, I mean, we just know the history of the Empire and how they were kind of drug along with the Empire and how the Sith got involved in all that. But we don't really know much about the Imperial Knights themselves as an order. And I would still love to know more about them. Yeah, what gets me about it, the whole idea uh, you mentioned, and this is kind of off the page, uh, you mentioned how they're, they're serving. 
their force users, their Imperial Knights, they're serving, kind of begs the question, one, when she talks about her personal life, does this mean that an Imperial Knight essentially is an Imperial Knight while on duty and while off duty can have a personal life, which is something that the Jedi in a lot of, of eras weren't allowed to do. But when it, what stands out to me, the idea of, you know, the ruler and the future Empress, right, uh, they are force users, they are Imperial Knights, and yet they are rulers at the same time, brings me back to the whole Pius Dia uh, era and the whole idea that there was a point in time where after some really, really bad Supreme Chancellors, the Republic had a series of Jedi as Supreme Chancellors. And for the most part, Jedi have stayed away from those positions of power because of how that power could corrupt them. It's much more often Sith who are leading empires or who are conquering rather than it being a Jedi at the top of the political food chain. And yet here we have yet another of those weird contradictions of Imperial Knights, you know, where they fall in between the two sides in some respects, because here they're leading in a way that you would expect a Sith to lead, and yet they seem to be more in line with what we would have expected of, say, those few Jedi that are detailed in great detail in the, the uh, Essential Atlas um, from that uh, Pius Dia era, after the Crusades and everything, you know, wrapped up at that point, after the Constus Specs uh, chancellors were finally taken down and such. Mm -hmm. So we've got essentially a, a, a quick scene as our heroes leave um, from the Crimson Axe and is while they're en route to go to uh, Socorro, I was going to confuse Socorro or Serico, uh, to Socorro to go see Bantha Rock and his family that we get what I find is one of my favorite scenes within the entirety of the Legacy series. Uh, this is not a very action-heavy arc or pair of arcs in this case but after Cade wound up briefly with Darth Talon supposedly to prove that he was one of them not that he was actually corrupted or anything uh, and and after that was seen by one of those little you know camera bug things uh, after that was seen by Delia she's pretty much giving Cade the cold shoulder and he has to actually go talk to her. And first, I mean, it starts out great in that before he even goes to speak to her, I mean, he says, you know, mind the helm to Jariah. I'm going to go talk it out with Blue. And as he's standing in the hallway, his head's kind of down. He just says in a small, they wrote it in the small letters, kind of him talking to himself, you know, I hate talking. And he finally gets a chance to talk to her. He says one of those things that, that, that screams to me, it's one of the best love-based lines uh, in all of Star Wars, to me, um, they're talking. She's griping about, you know, yeah, you, it looked like it was real tough to prove yourself to be one of them. It looks like it was real difficult for you to hook up with that woman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he says, Kark it. And yeah, I don't like the whole Kark or Kavark or Kriff thing. I think Star Wars swear words usually sound pretty stupid. Um, but he says, Kark it blue. It was never like that. She, Talon, the Sith, they got this passion, all right, but there's this dark void where their heart ought to be. With you and me, it ain't like that. It's like you take the dark away, which is one of the best expressions of love that I think we've ever seen within the Star Wars saga. It's certainly more very genuine and very true to the character. And then he even says, uh, Umajimuna Blue, mm -hmm. which is, I love you in uh, Hatiz. And her response, it's, it's sort of the legacy variant of the I love you, I know thing. And yes, my wife and I are soon, for Valentine's Day together, we're getting the 
the I love you, I know symbol things. Um, That's awesome. Her response, her response is not, you know, I know, or I love you back. It's damn you, Cade, when she's sort of facing away, kind of almost like talking to herself more than him. Why do I put up with you? And then, of course, they have their makeup booty moment and R2-D2 is sent away. Um, One of the most genuine character scenes that feels the most human out of any of the romantic interactions that we get within Star Wars. And again, it feels infinitely more genuine than anything we get between Anakin and Padme in the prequels. I mean, if we're going to compare love story type interactions, Han and Leia, and in this case, Delia and Cade, far more realistic and human than anything we got in the prequels. Yeah, that I, I shared that picture and, and even referenced the I love you, I know as well on our Facebook page. Uh, another one of the, the humor parts that came up, you know, when they're back at the uh, Sor- Socorro uh, spaceport, Naxi's like going on, well, you gotta take me off this rock after what I've done for you, Ravel, cook my eyeballs and use them for what do you call them, appetizers? And Chalk's like, he's not traveling with us. Gonna lose myself in the galaxy, work the fringes for a while. You ought to do the, you ought to consider doing the same, Cad. And of course, Naxi's like, uh, what's he saying? Well, Furball ain't gonna roast me, is he? Shut up, Naxi. Not a bad idea, Chuck. Might do it myself. You ain't gonna roast me, are you, Cade? Uh, get up, Screeger, you manky gaunt. Tempting as it is to see you roasted, we pay what we owe. And since like, since when? <laughs> I love the banter back and forth between these two. I mean, granted, you know, Sin knows he's a Jedi now, and there's that that kind of wall of distrust, but he's slowly lowering it, and you're starting to see that that camaraderie that they had come back, and that's when he turns to Kree, and she's like, you know, hey, Cade, say bye to Blue for me, okay? And he's like, tell Sin, Delilah ain't talking to me. Been acting funny since I got free of the, seat, free of the Sith. Beats me as to why. Cade, you nerf her or talk to her. And, he's, you know, they start flying away, and he's like, Kree knows something about Blue's mad that I don't. And then this is that that joke where Sin's like, probably a hydraulic thing or something. I'm like, is that like a reference to a menstrual cycle here? I mean, I just like it. I never even thought about that until today. And I had to share that one as well. I was like, oh, my God, that was like the slickest. Like, and it works because she's a mechanic. So it could easily be a hydraulic thing as well. But I was just like, oh, Cade, you, you total just oblivious man slut. <laughs> so. They, they wind up making their way to, and I, I think I said this wrong a second, it's not Serico or Socorro that they're going to. That's where they were. And they're heading to Iago, right? Which, of course, we see in Mystery of a Thousand Moons and all that uh, within the Clone Wars and whatnot, the whole, are you an angel thing? Uh, as they're coming into orbit, I actually, again, it's another one of those moments that feels very human. Granted, Cade looks kind of like an idiot sitting in the chair when he says, you know, I was thinking more like a couple of glasses of whatever, as they're coming into orbit here. Um, but you've got Delia behind him, standing behind his chair, essentially just quietly with one arm over the back of the, over the, the very top of the chair, just playing with Cade's hair as he comes in. Again, a very human type of moment added into the artwork there. Gotta wonder if that was something that Dursima added or if that was something that was initially within the script. Um, but they don't get a chance to really sit back and bask in anything because as they show up to uh, Rock's nest, so to speak, um, they basically see Black Sun uh, coming under fire. There's a tracking device that was placed on the ship by Aslan Ray, uh, who we don't really know anything about at this point, um, attached to the ship. Turns out they get here and Black Sun is already there, basically try- not going after Kate or anything, but there to force protection money from Bantha and his family. And in a very quick uh, battle sequence, again, not a super action-heavy uh, 
couple of arcs, but in a very quick battle sequence, we wind up getting to meet uh, Anna, who is uh, Bantha's daughter, who is, and, and may I say that uh, even though apparently MSNBC would have would think that conservatives would have issues with this, um, we do have a couple of mixed-race children here, a biracial family. Um, Bantha Nat Skywalker is white. Uh, his wife, Drew, is black. Their children are biracial. <gasps> I'm very impressed that you know Star Wars actually took the time to do that because it's so... It's so rare we wind up seeing any human characters that aren't white in the first place, but to have characters who are not only white, but white and black together in a biracial family with biracial children, that stood out to me back then, still stands out to me now, unfortunately, because we haven't seen it all that much within Star Wars. But suffice to say, we meet Anna, mm -hmm. which is the older daughter, uh, or the oldest child, the daughter that uh, uh, we know that Jiraiya has a thing for. We and wind I up meeting... That out. I mean, when they played that out in the scene earlier, there's that whole, well, you got to pick. You can either go for Anya or you can go for Drew's food. And he's like, oh, man, that's not fair. And he's like, life ain't fair, buddy. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so we've got her. We meet uh, Skeeto, apparently, uh, the son. And we wind up meeting Micah, who is uh, a, a basically a war orphan. He was a slave. And he lost his legs. And not only have they taken him in as an adopted son, but he also has uh, cybernetic legs that Nat has put together for him, and he's not human. So we have an even more diverse family here for this version of the Skywalkers, or, or the Rocks, because only Drew knows the truth behind them. And Drew herself uh, is a bit of a healer. So we get to meet them, even though it does that little heavy-handed thing of, nice shot, big sister, nice driving, little brother. You know, good thing you clarified that. If you've watched any of the cinema sins of uh, uh, everything wrong with things from movies, they do that. Uh, they point that out specifically with things like the Chronicles of Riddick. You know, uh, know your place, Lady Vanko. Yes, dear husband, or whatever. Well, it's glad to know that in a few seconds they made sure that they each knew who each other was in relation to each other, just in case you know any omniscient third-person uh, audience members out there happen to have been uh, watching. Things. But we end the first issue with Aslan Ray giving a report um, that they've been able to track, or that she, we don't know if it's a she at this point, we just know it's a, a strange person in a cloak and mask, has been able to track them from the Crimson Ask, Ask, the Crimson Axe, see, there you go, there you go. I'm, I'm talking like a southerner, there's Axe and there's Ask, and I somehow got the two confused, um, that they've gone from the Crimson Axe to Iego, and now she's transmitting their coordinates. We don't know to whom. We do know there's some dead people around where she's standing at the end of the issue, which suggests that she may be out to kill Kate or the crew. But at this point, we're not quite sure who that is as we round out Loyalties Part 1 and move on to Issue 24. Yeah. I, go on, was, or are we going to add anything? I, I had one little thing. Okay. The one thing that, that was weird was, like, I don't know. I, I never really kind of thought that any of the kids were actually Banthas. Um, I just kind of thought they were all war orphans, but I mean, it could work very easily. And the fact that, you know, Drew is Kifar, the same uh, race as Quinlan Voss, I thought that was also cool, which added to the whole her being a healer and stuff. They have a tradition with force use as well. So that played. But 
when Bantha was shown, you know, when they first talk about him, that's one of those things where I think the zero and zero half issues really came and served the series well. Because if you didn't know anything about him, I mean, literally, they start talking about him as, as Bantha and they're talking about kits and the kits on the swoops. And you're like, wait, what? That was the part where I was like, what in the heck is going on? Like, I it took me a while to figure out that he, the kits were the kids. I'm like, oh, okay. That's his okay. I mean, he does have like when he says Purdy, he says it P U R T Y. I mean, he's got a definite drawl to him. So I I wonder if him saying kits is just his way of saying kids and that's just his accent coming across, or if he's legitimately just calling them kits and this is just a new slang term for kids. I mean, it was so new it it threw me off the first time I was reading it and I didn't quite understand what the heck he was talking about. But then as I pushed forward, I quickly figured it out. So it wasn't like a major thing, but yeah, it took me a second. And then of course, you know, we jumped four days later. Yeah, and you know, uh, the, the two kids, they may be come to think of it. Now that you've said that they may be stepchildren for Nat. They may have been Drew's before he came into their lives. I'm not sure that that's ever made clear. It certainly isn't made clear within uh, these issues here. Uh, I remember that being something that just kind of stood out at the time. Either way, whether it's biracial children with a white and black parent or if they are essentially black children with a black mother who's there and a white stepfather, it's still a biracial family and now a bi-species family because now we have Micah uh, inserted into the mix and Micah uh, is a Cathar. So it's kind of cool to see the way that they play that. And, and it is a very well-functioning family. This is not, oh, he's going to hang out with his pirate buddies type of thing, so it's going to be all kinds of dysfunction. Heck, if they are, in a sense, Cade's family, right? I mean, Cade is, is Nat's nephew. I mean, that's about the most functional family that Cade's got. Um, and certainly is a counterpoint to Cade's own life. Well, and, and what also is weird is it, when you get to Loyalties Part 2 in the little synopsis, they talk about Bantha Rock and, quote-unquote, Aunt Drew, and then it also talks about Sin's case flirting with, quote-unquote, cousin Anna. And so it's kind of like, it's funny that they don't you know put quotes around Uncle Bantha Rock. They just put quotes around Aunt Drew and cousin Anna. So I was kind of... Kind of does make you think that maybe they might just be stepkids. Right, so Not no, no blood relation between the two. So... All right, we pick up four days later, and this is the day in which we're going to see the transmission coming in from Wrath of the Dragon. So this gives you your sense that this overlaps some with Indomitable. Um, but they're all just kind of chilling, relaxing a little bit. Um, yeah, they got a nice pool and everything. Jiraiya's getting to spend some time with Anna. But then Nat is able to pull K the Sky aside, essentially like, okay, so what exactly have you been doing? You went where? You were in the Sith Temple to get... Are you out of your freaking mind? But he's able to turn it on his uncle a little bit. And this is the, the conversation in which we learn very quickly, instead of this being a mystery that drags out, we learn very quickly that Bantha Rock is not Bantha Rock. He's Nat Skywalker. And the only person among the family that knows the truth about that is Drew. Uh, and in fact, everybody in that family knows Cade simply as Cade, apparently not as Cade Skywalker. We'll wind up finding that out as the issue progresses here. But he turns it on him. And basically says, oh, yeah, and by the way, I met my mom, and surely, or I didn't meet, but I was saved by my mom, um, surely, you know, somebody should have told me that she even existed out there, because I thought my mom was dead, so what the hell, uncle, essentially. Um, and we get another of these cool flashbacks where he plays a video, oddly enough, uh, he plays a video clip as opposed to this being just a straight flashback, 
to show Cade his mother and Cole. And we learned that not only were you know Cole and Morrigan uh, working together before they wound up together, um, we already know that when they had Cole, um, or when they had Cade, that Cole wanted Morrigan to stay around, but she wouldn't stay around. She left. Uh, we learned that Cade spent part of his childhood spending time with Nat instead of spending time with his father, at least for a little while, presumably while his father was still working on the OSIS project and that sort of thing. And we learn that Cole and Morrigan were actually married, but they kept the marriage a secret. And as opposed to in the prequel era, where keeping it a secret, you would have had to have done, like Anakin and Padme did. In this case, we it's he's sort of befuddled, like, you know, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense of why they had to keep it a secret. It's just, you know, it seemed like she's someone who keeps a lot of secrets, you know? Um, I just, I found it interesting that he's able to work in this quick little bit of, of exposition. It, it tells us a lot about those early days, but it only takes, what, three panels, um, yeah. four panels, and then it's done, it's gone, and we move on. That's the way legacy tends to work. It's one or the other. It's a few quick panels with a lot of exposition that gives us things we were curious about, or it's flashbacks, and the flashbacks become a big part of the storytelling of that issue, like with Indomitable. It's one extreme or the other. Well, and that's one of the other images I shared, the, the picture at the bottom where it's got a young Cade and he's there with Nat and Cole's in the background. I mean, you know, I'm I'm interested as to why Cole walked away from the Order. And looking at him, I mean, he's a very healthy, virile-looking Skywalker. I mean, he looks like a young Luke with a beard and goatee kind of action. But when Cade brings up the fact about, you know, his mom and when he says, it's all back when you were still Nat Skywalker, Jedi Knight, the reaction of Bantha was awesome because, you know, he, he gets mad and starts yelling at him. He's like, I dropped the name when I left the order for reasons that are none of your dang business. Drew knows the kids don't. And if you're going to flap your lips, you can leave. And of course, you know, Cade immediately, OK, throttle back. Way no one ever talk about her. I always figured my mom was dead. <laughs> like, sorry. But <laughs> you know? dang, son, it's okay. Chill. Yeah. Um, I, I do like the fact that Bantha, he's he's this guy, he was a Jedi, but now he's the family man. And if anything, he's sort of the, the, the guy you would expect to fit the accent that you keep throwing on everybody. His accent that you're using there fits very well. The, the, the thing with that, you know what he reminds me of? I mean, they, they see the video of what's going on on Dak, realize that in a sense it's their fault, or not their fault, but it's, it's um, you know, he's already ticked off Crate, and now Crate's going out killing. If he had killed Crate when he had the chance, then maybe, maybe this wouldn't be happening. So Cade's just, he was like, you know, I'm a Skywalker, that's my real name, I'm a wanted man, I was stupid to come here, I need to get out of here, et cetera, et cetera. And before he can do anything, not only does Bantha slash Nat punch him a couple of times and, and, and you know, kind of knock some sense into the boy. But he also is getting up in his face, you know, the hell I don't, that's your dang blamed problem. I, I swear he says dang blamed problem in the actual writing. His phrases like, you know, you know, half cock this, you need to smarten up, boy, et cetera, et cetera. It reminds me, unfortunately, because this is an intense moment, and that's a great character, reminds me of Uncle Gundy, a punch Gundarian <laughs> from um, some of the arcs uh, or some of the episodes of the droids cartoon because that's totally him's like y'all about to do this and blah 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 and dig it dong and dig it dang 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 and then he you know he keeps you know kicking an r2d2 and he's he's bouncing up and down on his one leg because he hurt his toe i mean maybe it's because i just recently had done the from the star wars home video library video that's up on youtube where it takes the 
the different cuts of the droids episodes and shows what was in the original aired version versus what's in those DVD, you know, the feature film versions. But I can't help but think of Gundy going off, you know, and and kicking it a droid. He because he even looks a lot like Gundy. Take away the the uh, the the bandana slash do-rag type thing he's wearing. I guess it's kind of like a, a rolled-up bandana type thing. Take that off and stick a, a, an Indiana Jones-style fedora or another, like, cowboy-style hat, and, dude, you've got Uncle Gundy. <laughs> well, you know who he always remind me of in this persona? Not the young version of him. Hulk Hogan. I mean, he's got, like, the Hollywood Hulk Hogan thing going on for him. I mean, he's got the, the long hair underneath his cap, and he's got the really long mustache in the front with the stubble underneath. But that the scene that where he's screaming at him and stuff, I love the way that plays out because the, the kid, you know, I'm assuming, you know, it's a stepson at this point. Is, he's just like, who cares? Imps or Sith come. We'll drive him off like we did Black Sun. Oh, yeah, you and the other kits against a Star Destroyer. That'd be a fine way to die, says Cade. Gotta be a gotta be a way gotta have a plan and then bantha's like oh kade's got a plan all right run and keep running ain't that right boy kade's like you don't know old man and you ain't got no right and that's when he's like the hell i don't and the look on kade's face like he is pissed and then as he continues on he's like you need to smarten up boy you need to think before you do something stupid and that's when kade punches bantha i mean when i first read this I, i always thought bantha did two hits but if you actually look kade throws the first punch and then bantha punches him back and then he's like we'll sort this out in the morning and then walks off and i love the way that that you know i mean it was just like boom there's a hit hit for hit and then he's like we'll deal with this later but earlier than that there's a scene you know because they were talking about business being good uh kate says looks like business here's been good and bantha goes yeah been working for some new drives for an old buddy shipmaster yuri monbarka and his starlight yard on deck throughout this week and i was just like oh he must not know which immediately plays into as those transmissions start coming in a later scene which you know i I like you know bantha he does the whole we're going to bed we're going to deal with this tomorrow and it goes to the whole next scene where you know they're in bed and he gets up and goes off to uh look for the death sticks and all and of course he's trying to get the death sticks to you know in, in this case, it's not to dull his connection to the Force per se, although that winds up being something he wants to do. But he wants to basically just – just his, his head's full of all this stuff and all these concerns. He just essentially wants to get away from it, which I guess is the escape angle that a lot of drug users will use. Um, but he winds up having a conversation with both the Force ghost of Luke, who's basically you know, suggesting he should use something like regular meditation rather than drugs to help himself out. And he winds up being able to have a forced ghost conversation with his own father. Um, Still basically cussing out his father. You know, uh, you showed me how to not just use my healing ability to, you know, heal the cracks, but also find the cracks and exploit them. So surely you, you know, you knew what you were giving me when you gave it to me. Although I do like the fact that Cole essentially says that it wasn't that Cole wasn't talking to him. Uh, It's basically kind of what Wolf Sazen had said, um, that it's, it's the fact that Cade was so angry with everything, with the universe in general, that for seven straight years, uh, his anger blocked out the ability for him to sense and be able to have a conversation with his father. That, that it, it shows that, you know, Cade, uh, more than any other Star Wars character in a lot of cases, uh, in fact, more than most Star Wars characters at least, Cade has been the one who's in charge of his own destiny in a lot of ways. He has to make the choices and live with them and yes, it seems like sometimes he's the one who's getting the crap end of the stick and he's going to wind up, you know, rising to become the man he should be. 
But when he's down in the dumps and not the man he should be, that's also the result in many cases of his decisions. Minus winding up out there left alone over Osis to be found by the pirates, he Which, is a man of his own making, and even that sort of is because it's his impulsiveness going out in the fighter that winds up leaving him there in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of those things where, you know, being raised by pirates couldn't help your attitude whatsoever. But, you know, when Cole says your anger blocked me, I like that, you know, it's a direct response to what Cade's saying there. As he, you know, he's full of angst. He's really ticked off. He goes, what makes you think you have... He goes, what makes you think you can just appear after seven years and start dictating what I do? If you didn't want me to use that technique as a weapon, you should have never shown it to me. And that's when he says, you know, it's your anger. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like this is retreading a lot of stuff that went down during the New Jedi Order. Uh, it seems like Cade's just, you know, and he'll mention, I think, in the next issue where he talks about the dark side just being a tool. And the Jedi especially are just like, whoa, buddy. You know, and, and it's kind of sad in that regard that this came out after fate of the jedi and legacy of the force and all that stuff because you know they would have thrown some more references into you know hey skywalkers look what happened to solo look what you know luke did we put an assassination out on luke's own nephew i mean those would have been great theological debates when we finally get into the hidden temple and stuff i would have loved to see that kind of stuff but this kind of gives you that feel of it at this point so kate goes ahead uses the deck stick he's all drugged out and in comes the mysterious masked character who we sort of can tell is a woman somewhat by the, uh, the way the character is drawn, but not entirely clearly in some shots, uh, winds up showing up and knocking out Cade. Thankfully, Nat is there to save him briefly, and it turns out this mysterious intruder is unmasked, and not only is it a woman, it's Aslan Ray, who, you know, this time we're like, who the hell's Aslan Ray? Aslan Ray turns out to be someone that Cade knew because she was a Jedi student while he was. She was on Coruscant when all the crap went down that wound up destroying the, the current incarnation of the Jedi Order and such, or most of it. She was separated from her master, and she essentially winds up becoming a bounty hunter eventually, although that's not entirely true. Uh, the part about Coruscant being separated from Razi Tomb, her Jedi master, yes, that's true. We will find out in upcoming issues the rest of her story about becoming a bounty hunter not really. That's essentially all a cover. But these two, you know, they they were sweet on each other at the time. That, of course, is going to add into some more jealousy yet again for Jelia Blue. Zeltrons and those hormones. Um, <laughs> but she has it, it sort of brought down upon them, uh, or at least they think she has brought down upon them the Imperials. Only the Imperials are showing up because Black Sun points out, you know, hey, the ship that wound up uh, helping drive us off from Iego, that sure looks like the one you're looking for, the Minoc. And yes, Aslan is able to send the Imperials away, but it sort of begs this question of really, how did they know? And, and without necessarily putting her loyalty into question, it still does put her loyalty into question because for a moment there, you're like, oh, hell no, how did this happen? Um, and it turns out, you know, it... This, at least, this group of Imperials finding them from the Sith version of the Empire was not her doing. But it is this visit by the Imperials that convinces Cade that there is only one option, and that is that the only way that Crate is ever going to leave him alone is if Crate is dead. And he starts forming this idea that you essentially, if you take out Crate, who is, at, who is weakened at this point because he really is as ill 
as it took for him to bring in Cade to try to heal him. You know, that's a pretty desperate situation. The Sith are already starting to fragment underneath him. You take out Crate, you'll be able to knock out the Sith and possibly send them fighting against each other or at least make them easier to take down, which is essentially what's happening in Legacy Volume 2 at this point. Um, but the revelation of Aslan Ray, I remember finding that kind of a surprise at the time. And uh, to, to get Cade to that point of kill Crate. It seems like it took a little while for him to reach that point. You know, of all people, Cade should be the one who is willing to kill Crate more than anybody else. You know, the others may be Jedi and such who look for other options. Cade should have been the one at first wanting to just kill the guy. Um, but him deciding it's time to wipe him out not only sets up uh, what's coming in the Hidden Temple, but also what's going to be coming up in Vector. Um, it's, it prompts Nat to tell him, you know, if you need allies, there is a hidden Jedi temple out there setting up the next two issues. And Aslan Ray very briefly is revealed in the last page that she is an Imperial Knight, not a bounty hunter. And she is bringing Antares and Ganner and Maricea to Cade at this point as part of the, the mission talked about earlier in this arc back on Bastion. A lot of stuff happening in that, those last few pages, but it's all very much like lighting a flame under the gas to send the, you know, the explosive force forward. And I expected big stuff necessarily in the next arc. Instead, that force is carried forward with sort of some brief moments to reflect into Vector. Well, there's also some very subtle things that Jan did. Uh, you know, when Aslan knocks Cade down and Nate shows up or Nat shows up and he, uh, you know, tries to save her. There's a moment where Cade starts to get up and he uses his Sith power on himself. He touches his head and he's got the force lightning all on him. And then his eyes are all lit up like a Sith. So I thought that was kind of cool, you know, once again, showing that this healing power is kind of dark side affiliated. And the other one was the fact that, you know, Aslan's posing as a bounty hunter and her lightsaber is not Imperial Knight Blue. And it makes sense because she's posing as someone she wouldn't want to be recognized as an Imperial Knight. So, you know, her lightsaber color was off. But when I was looking at it, I was like, wait, why isn't that? And then I thought about it later. I was like, oh, okay, that's why. But when the Imperials showed up and they're doing their fight, the one thing that was cool is when, when she gets punched, they're all hiding inside the Minoc down below underneath the thing. And, I mean, Delilah is holding Cade back and he is screaming. He's like, he hit her! That him going to hit Aslan! I felt it! And she's like, hush, Cade. You can't do nothing. You'll just get everyone killed. I want death. I want to kill. And his eyes are all sithly. I mean, he is internally struggling, which is, you know, as we're going to get to in the next issue, the Jedi, this is their concern with what's going on with him. Everyone can feel that Cade is dangerous right now. And, you know, the reader, you can see it. They're not drawing too much attention to it from his point of view, but from those around him, those that know him to a degree. And I love the subtlety of that. It's funny because, I mean, that in and of itself, it's known, it kind of brings two things to mind. One is just the intensity of that, the, oh, you know, he's got so much darkness in him and such. But the other part is you can, you, you almost sort of feel like at this point we know Cade well enough that somebody should be sitting beside him going, dude, 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 the one holding you back. That's your current woman, not Aslan Ray. What the hell are you doing? Chill out. You're going to, oh, oh, man. You know, kind of one of those uh, types of things where it's not just that he's angry. Uh, he's just completely blowing up this whole thing to Delia that he still has feelings, perhaps, for this woman. This, this is an extreme reaction to this being a friend. Um, so you, you've already got a situation where they've been setting up this idea that that Delia and Kay, they sort of, they love each other, but there's that disconnect of, you know, being able to often understand each other at times, and other things keep sort of, you know, pushing her trust in him 
downward. And here's this again. Just as soon as she finally is willing to forgive him for Talon, now here's Alan Ray. Or Alan Ray? Yeah, that's now there's this dude named Alan Ray. Uh, now there's Aslan Ray entering the mix. And again, it's it's sort of pushing this this sense that, that you, you got to figure that at some point, if we're going to see Cade be resolved into a her- truly heroic character, one of the things they're going to have to do is, at least storytelling-wise, is start to bring him more towards monogamy, bring him more towards the idea that there is, he's got to choose who he's got feelings for. You know, thankfully, at least it's not Mara CFL thrown into the mix because that was some bad coloring back <laughs> broken. Well, I, I like how the conversation directs the story here. I mean, you know, it, it works well. He gets done saying, you know, kill Crate, and he goes, I know it sounds, I know how it sounds, but I'm not crazy. I've spent time among the Sith. I know how ill Crate really is. I've seen the divisions festering in the Sith Order. Crate's got no heir. For all their talk of being one, with Crate dead, the Sith will fall on each other like starving Anuba, and the Order will tear itself apart. They're then no one will bother me anymore. And I love, you know, like how they focus on certain words. You know, they bold them for emphasis. What I need are allies. I don't trust Ronfell. He's got his own agenda, including getting his throne back. Betty lit crates bong armor clean to make that happen. And I don't know this Gar Stasi. And it seems, and so far, it seems like he don't mind how many corpses he leaves behind to get a job done. Too bad the Jedi are all scattered. And then Rock's like, not entirely true. There's a, hidden temple i i just i love the way that the dialogue drives it you know it's pushing us to the next one and we're like okay here we go i mean kind of it it's like what revenge of the sith the novel did for anakin wanting to get into the the high council becoming a master so he can get at the holocrons so he could get the information he wanted to save padme and how that was dropped from the the film you know it's like that little tidbit was needed and i like how this just drives it in and it's just done so fluently it's so natural and i love that i always found that to be one of those things with that made him a whiny uh, anakin that is a whiny little child in in revenge of the sith the whole you know know, it's not fair how can you be on the council and not be a master oh really he's that worried about a title no it wasn't the title he needed access to the holocrons and only a master can get them so that's why he feels screwed but you don't get any of that the book that's yeah, exactly. And that's and they do it so natural. And that's that's what I do love about this one is like everything's there. It's subtle. It's right there. And that's why I say you'll definitely get more out of a reread than you ever will on your first time through. I mean, like the, the little subtleties of like Cad uh, Cad of Cade putting his hand on his head and, and, you know, reviving himself and the color of Aslan's lightsaber and things like that. Like I totally missed it on my first few read throughs. You know, I literally only read it as I was prepping for tonight's episode. Which brings us into the Hidden Temple, another two-parter. Uh, we learned that basically when uh, things started going down, the Jedi set up a Hidden Temple on Tybus. And it says Hidden Temple, but it's essentially, it's a, it, it, like you described it the way that uh, the, we saw in, in The Last of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. It's essentially a bunch of starships all cobbled together to make a so-called temple uh, in this rift, which in doing so makes it so that it's possible for them to escape in theory. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting uh, decision as far as how they set it up. But we learned that there are Jedi who are essentially being saved, but there's only a handful of Jedi Masters left at this point. We will come to find there are Krukruk, 
who manages to survive all this time. He's in so many different freaking eras. Um, and Trasa, uh, who was a Neddy, right, like Obinar in them. Uh, and, of course, uh, we'll wind up meeting uh, a new one when we get to that scene here in just a little bit, a little Chadra fan guy. But as they arrive at this hidden temple, it's kind of a, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it type of moment because we never see another ship landing. But Aslan Ray has contacted... Maricia fell and Antares and Gander back at the end of the last one. She has dropped a tracking device into the trash, essentially, and dumped it into the atmosphere so that the Imperial Knights can find them. And literally, as Jiraiya and Deliah and Aslan and Nat and Kate are getting off of the Minoc to meet, of all people, uh, Wolf Sazen and Shado Vow, who, thankfully, there's not a lot of retconning to do. They learned about the Hidden Temple only... Uh, uh, late in the game, so they wouldn't have known about it the last time they were with Cade. Um, sure enough, right behind them, oh, look, it's another parked ship, and here's Maricia and Antares and Ganner. I thought that was a little bit far-fetched, yeah. the idea that, oh, look, here they are standing there by their ship that is now decloaked, and our main characters didn't see it or hear it, so that you can have that moment of, uh, Shado having his lightsaber out, and they turn around, and it's not that the lightsaber's out for Cade, it's out for the Imperial Knights. I thought that was a little bit stretching <laughs> credulity there. Well, I mean, it would have been cool if maybe the ship behind the Imperial Knights was like a new, high-tech, updated version of the Millennium Falcon. We're like, oh, that's how they got across the galaxy in less than a day. I mean, yeah, that, there was a disconnect there. It's like, okay, she dropped it off as they were approaching the planet. How in the heck did they get there that fast? But again, going back to some of the stuff Jan does at the beginning of this, in the last issue, part of Hawk, or Rock, when Rock uh, brings Kate in and says, oh, well, I want to know about what's going on, he was drawn to it by the tattoo on Kate's arm. And there's a scene here where you watch as Delilah is filling in and covering the Sith tattoo with a new tattoo. And later he'll be sporting the new tattoo over that one. I thought that was a great attention to detail uh, because it, it literally proved where it went, why it went. And it's all in that one panel. Nothing is talked about it. It's just like if you're not paying attention to what's going on in the imagery, you would totally miss it. And I love it. I love the way that that plays out. But, yeah, the fact that she just dropped that out the trash. And, and it's like, really, you going to wait to dump the trash like in their orbit? Like, don't you dump the trash before you jump to hyperspace? Like, th that was also another one that I was like, why Why are you dumping the trash? Like, you just showed up at their doorstep. Most people don't crap on someone's doorstep. Why are you doing it? <laughs> litterbug, litterbug. Um, so, basically, it turns out that the Imperial Knights are there uh, on a diplomatic mission, in a sense. Um, they were supposed to catch Cade and bring Cade back to Rowan. But when Aslan Ray informed them about what was going on with them heading to this secret hidden Jedi temple, their mission changed. They want to do what they've done with Gar Stasi, which is open up a line of communication for a potential alliance to have the Jedi, the Galactic Alliance Remnant, and Rowan Fell's Imperial uh, apparatus to work together. Essentially what the Triumvirate's going to wind up being by the time of Legacy Volume 2. These are those first steps towards that. And we learn a little bit about how basically Kukruk uh, back on Osis, had managed to get gravely injured while saving the others, hence him telling them how to get to the Hidden Temple. Uh, we meet them. We wind up meeting uh, Tilly Kwa, who's the Chadra fan uh, member of this sort of three-person Jedi Council that we wind up meeting here. Um, but it's a whole lot of discussion of, you know, should there be an alliance between the Empire 
and the Jedi. You know, how much uh, blame does Rowan Fell carry for what the Empire did, particularly on Osis? Because we know from back, from seeing previous issues that he actually wanted to allow the Jedi to continue to exist as long as they pulled back uh, and didn't resist. And yet here, you know, they don't know that yet. We know that as readers. So she's able to reveal that to them, what we now know to be true, so we can take her at her word as readers. Um, to, to hopefully soften them up to the idea of possibly being willing to work with the Imperial Knights. Um, for Cade's part, of course, he's revealing essentially his plan as he talked about back at the end of the previous issue, the desire to kill Crate. Um, he reveals that Crate used to be Asherod Het, which is kind of a shot because both Trasa and Kukurk served with him in the Clone Wars. And he's basically saying, you know, we don't need to build up the Jedi for generations to go after this guy. We don't even necessarily need to work with the Galactic Alliance. Heck, we may not even need to work with the with, with Fell's Empire. Instead, what we need is essentially a small kill squad to go in and take out Crate, if you're willing to put that together. And for them, that for the Jedi, that is the the ongoing question. You know, is a kill squad, is assassination something that should be a Jedi tool? If it's in the greater good of the galaxy at large, should a Jedi be willing to kill, or should it always essentially be a last resort? And at what point with Crate does it become a last resort? You would think that at this point, if it's a matter of ending genocide, and you're not going to be able to redeem Crate or Asherah Hit and make him a Jedi or something again, you would think that at this point the Jedi would say, yeah, you know what, screw it, we kill him, risk a little bit of darkness, and we get something else. I mean, what's the difference between, you know, Crate is standing there, about to literally bring his lightsaber down to kill an innocent and a Jedi stepping in and killing him right then versus him ordering the deaths of all these Mon Calamari and so many others in the galaxy and in the process of him being in power, having that command as an ongoing instruction to his minions and making it something where you can step in uh, and justify killing him. Granted, they make the argument, maybe if you kill him, something worse steps into his place, but it seems like the Jedi are very much like the Jedi in the prequel era leading into the Clone Wars, sort of the, you know, we're not willing to step in. It needs to be worse for us to jump in. It's almost like they got blinders on to what is happening within the galaxy. They are detached from what is happening out there, and they're taking sort of a long view when, in this case, at, at least it seems that the opportunity is becoming ripe. And it's not like Kate is a Jedi and he's asking them for permission. He just wants help. You know, whether they help him or not, he's going to do this anyway. So there's that mm -hmm. sense of, well, you know, maybe this is the point at which the Jedi should be willing to assist because would it make the galaxy a better place if Cade tried and failed? You know, if yeah. your option is he tries and fails or he tries with your help and succeeds, you know, is it really that much of an issue getting your hands dirty? There's a big moral quandary put to the Jedi, and they play it up very well in these two issues. It's just it makes for an issue with a lot of dialogue and yeah. very, very, very little action. It's not. It's an important linchpin story, but it is not going to be a story uh, that is for everybody. Well, and like like when uh, Ta saw she she goes, uh, Jedi respect life, young Skywalker, all life. The Force connects everything in the cycle of death and renewal, even the Sith. Jedi may take lives if there is no other choice, but to deliberately search out one to kill, this is not the Jedi way. Cage should have responded, not the Jedi way. Master Skywalker had his own nephew murdered for being a Sith. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things, like, if they would have done it differently, that could have played out totally different. But with Master Trasa herself, when she's introduced, you know, 
Cade's talking about hard to meet a myth, you know, and he goes, oh, Nettie are real enough, if few in number. Master Trossar is herself something of a legend. Nettie are naturally long-lived, and Master Saw fought in the Clone Wars along with Master Kruk. Master Saw speaks little about the time after the Clone Wars. It is said that when her dear companion, Master Tholm, died, she took root in meditation at the site of his funeral fire on Anzat. And I'm like, what she she's now on this planet taking root like how did they move her and and then there's well, that not to mention she's a living tree you better yeah. have made sure that funeral pyre was totally out before she tried to take root otherwise whoosh goodbye jedi well and, and what's the point of like like when she's standing there it's like her hair looks like it's taken root and if she took root before like how did you get her out of that planet into this place and you let her dig roots in why is she even bothering wearing clothes like the clothes seems like a, i mean you're stuck to the spot you're not going anywhere why are you even bothering with clothes <laughs> it's just one of those things that completely throws me off i'm like i, I just don't get it uh, mark uh, just wants to see the tree lady naked that must be it well, <laughs> And another character growth moment here that we jumped right by, when it first starts out, it's another Bantha moment where he's talking to Drew and he's talking about, you know, how he doesn't even trust Cade and all them, that he's taking them there because of all this. But it's the moment where he's talking about the temple itself. It's when they fly in and they, and we, you know, the readers for the first time see the temple. And of course, you know, it's at this point, it's from, you know, the, the ground view looking up. And so you see like a star destroyer pointing up uh, a couple different Mon Cal ships pointing up. There's some Carillion Corvettes. Some of them are pointing down and stuff. And he goes, there it is the hidden temple. My contribution during the last war, which I'm assuming is the war between the empire and the new Republic or, or galactic Alliance at this point. He's all, uh, Came across the location when I was still a Jedi, out scouting the rim. We helped the Jedi build it in secret. Cole's council was smart enough to remember their history. Good to have a fallback spot. The war and Ossus caught up with them before many could make such use of it. Before Cole, and he, you know, as he does a little dot, 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 and then it goes to another one like he's like kind of, you know, bringing in the emotion. It's why I never came back here. Built a safe haven, but my brother was dead before he could use it. Cade too, I thought. That was bitter back then, wasn't it, Drew? pretty dark for a while and it made me stop and go back in that last issue about the fact that you know this is the older brother you know this is the namesake and name for him wasn't something that was big i mean he was able to walk away from the name and take a new name whereas his brother his younger brother namesake was very important to him and that's the side of me that i would love to know more about this character i would love to see you know that progression and stuff i mean we're probably never going to get it but oh man that would just been awesome to see of course another character development thing here that really I remember this showing up somewhere in the series, but it kind of took me by surprise that this is where it had shown up. We have a conversation between Aslan Ray and Jiraiya about why he hates Jedi. Is there a particular reason? And in the grand scheme of things, a, a Jedi killed Jiraiya's father. Okay? Uh, and it turns out that when Aslan Ray is there at the, the, the hidden temple, ta-da! Her old Jedi master, Rasi Tomb is there. He actually survived. He thought she was dead. She thought he was dead. So much for sensing each other die in the Force. Um, and they're being reunited, and there's this question of, you know, well, is she going to be a Jedi now? Is she going to stick with her oath as an Imperial Knight and such? But it turns out that not only is there that to kind of push things for Aslan Ray and give us some character development for her, given that she's a brand new character as of these few issues, but we wind up finding that Jiraiya recognizes Rasi Tomb as the Jedi who killed his father. And we see him briefly back at the Minoc getting his gun, essentially saying, you know, I found the Jedi who killed you and I know where he is. I'm going to make him pay. Uh, oh, he'll know why before he dies. I promise you that. I planned this a long, long time and I'll get him alone in a moment and then boom. Uh, and I find it interesting that Jiraiya Sen's father is apparently 
uh, played by Keith David, a.k.a. Imam in Chronicles of Riddick and uh, Pitch Black. Uh, also, I believe he was the voice of Spawn back in the HBO animated series. But if you take the way that the character is drawn, give him a little bit more hair instead of having all the hair in the back, it is straight up Keith David that she is drawn as Jiraiya's father, which is, is cool. I like photo references and stuff like that. I'm just wondering if it was intentional. Yeah. Well, another little quick one here is with Blue. I mean, while they're all relaxing because they were told they can't come in with Cade, she goes up and she's talking to, uh, what is he, Master... Uh... Master son, can I call you Tobias? Oh, okay. So he calls him Tobe at one point. Yeah. Well, and she's sitting there talking to him, you know, is there anything fun to do around here? And he's like, well, there's saber practice, meditation. Meditation, huh? You Jedi are just too exciting. And then she leans in close. I mean, she's got this, like, seductive look on her face. She's like, how about... And she whispers in his ear, and you don't see what she says. And he goes, sure, I know just the place. And they walk off, and you watch Sin watching her walk off. And, you know, you're like, whoa, dude, is she going to cheat on her man? And then the next thing you see, you know, she's going back to what she does for fun, working on mechanical things. And so she got the swoop bike worked up. You're like, oh, okay, she's not going to cheat on Cade, even though Cade's a cheating SOB. So we move into the second issue of Hidden Temple, and they are still discussing everything. Um... Blue, for her part, Delia, for her part, is willing to go along with whatever Cade plans because, as she says, you know, she never signed on for a long life, short, fast, and interesting. That's what she signed on for, and that's what he's promising. So she's him. Presumably, Jiraiya's going to be him. It's not a question of whether the Minot crew is going to go after Crate. It's a question of who is going to be willing to go with them in doing it. And we get a little bit more about the background of Jiraiya. Because he actually tries to attack Rasutum, he gets in a couple good hits. Rasutum finally incapacitates him. He's like, what the hell are you about? Why are you attacking me, Sparky? And we wind up, it's kind of interesting because what we get here is an issue. It's supposed to be setting up what's going to happen leading into the next arc with the whole, you know, uh, sending a team to try to go after Crate. But in a sense, in a lot of ways, these two issues, the Hidden Temple, wind up being the untold backstory of Jiraiya's sin. Which is not something that I don't think anybody expected as they went into reading it. We find out that from his point of view, he was with Rab at one point and his father, who was working with Rab, and saw, uh, as they were on this planet, saw Rasi Tum cut down his father. Rasi Tum actually cuts off the leg of Rab that we see as a, yeah. a cybernetic one later. But he atta- his father is trying to kill Rasi Tum, leaps forward, and Rasi Tum winds up killing him uh, as Jiraiya and Rav and them on the ship manage to escape. And that's part of where Rav basically says, you know, he's going to look after Jiraiya. Uh, and there is a, a young girl who actually looks a lot like Jeriel from KOTOR um, who is there. And uh, she is someone who was taken aboard. And you get the sense from what Jiraiya is seeing here uh, in his flashback that, oh, well, they uh, – they somehow saved her or something, and that's not really the case. You know, she's been taken so that she can be uh, enslaved, essentially. But I like the fact that you get his side of things, and you immediately flip it. And Rossi Tomb explains essentially that they were just raping and pillaging. They were just going to uh, to to take that place, yeah. and instead, it was Rossi Tomb who was trying to save innocent lives. He wasn't meaning to take Jiraiya's father's lives, but he was trying to save the innocents. He even asked, you know. So what happened with that that girl? You know, whatever happened to her? Is she okay? And you know, basically, Jiraiya's getting money for that capture. Essentially, his father's cut of the deal, and she's taken away, presumably to be 
uh, enslaved. So it's it's interesting. It, it plays out very quickly. We see Jiraiya's hatred for the Jedi and why he hates them. And we see that be somewhat resolved within the span of just one issue because he's forced to look at the reality of what his father was doing and how he, what kind of man his father was and his role in it all when it comes to that little girl. Um, but I found that to be a nice twist and a nice addition to this and a cool way to show it essentially by showing two differing points of view on the same event back to back to cut through the crap and show what reality was. Yeah, and I love the way he says it too. Thank Jariah Sin. You know, Rav. And you know, deep down, what your father was really like. You need to stop wishing your father was better than he was. They weren't trading. They were raiding. For fun. You can admit that cold, hard truth to yourself, or we can continue our fight until one of us is dead. I, I love the way that plays out. And the other thing, before you know, Jiraiya shows up in Springs, there's a great little moment between former Master and former Padawan, between uh, Aslan Ra and him, when they're talking about the fact that she's now an Imperial Knight, and, you know, she and where her loyalty lies, you know, and she's like, you know, though the Jedi began my training, it was Imperial Knights who completed it. And I swore to serve the force through the Emperor. And I love, you know, he's just like, he tells her to go and to feel, you know, he's like, go meditate and I will do the same. And I, I love the fact that when, when Sin attacks him, he does it with a Yuzen Vong thud bug or razor bug, you know, so he couldn't quite feel it in the force. I, I just classic use of Sin's actual, you know, abilities, because that's one of the things he's known for is having this fondness with Yuzen Vong biotech. So I love the way it all plays together here. And like you said, it all happens so fast. Like, you know, there's a lot going on in this one that like, I keep saying, you know, this is a great if you're reading it, this is great reread material. Yeah, the last couple of scenes I'm kind of, or the last few, I guess I'm less positive about, not because they're bad scenes, but it just kind of feels like it's, the, the cool stuff was with Jiraiya's sin, you know, and now. And his da, once, like yeah, that, he did the da. da. <laughs> uh, once again, Shado doesn't trust Cade. It's kind of a recurring theme of he doesn't trust Cade and what Cade is becoming, et cetera, et cetera. So Cade and Shado are out in the land speeder, and Shado basically force blasts him down onto the ground and gets into a fight with him to try to force him to show that he really is a Sith or he really has gone dark. And Cade, yeah. essentially to show that he's not really in control, and Cade is able to essentially do that uh, to show that he is at least somewhat in control because, yeah, he does whoop Shado's butt and show him what he's been taught about the ability to essentially use shatter points, but... He shows he's in control by showing that he can use it, but then not using it. Uh, but as they come back, even Wolf Sazen has sensed what was going on out there, and he doesn't say it's it doesn't say he's afraid of Cade, but says every word you speak makes me fear uh, for you more, Cade. Um, this idea that Cade is walking that thin line, but it's not like that's something we needed to be told again because we've seen it so many times and we've seen. Shado's mistrust of him and not being quite sure what to make of him and the fact that Wolf is worried about him. It's a few pages that it allows time to pass and to show what Cade would have been doing while everything was going on with Jiraiya and while the Jedi Council was deliberating and everything, but I'm not sure it's a scene that was necessary in that moment. Instead, it sort of feels like it was to reiterate some points uh, that we'd already seen enough times that we didn't need them reiterated, but it adds more action into this arc that was very much a lot of talking, which is what the last couple scenes will be a lot more talking. Important talk. Again, not an action-packed issue. 
Well, I thought it was needed because, you know, I, for me, these two were friends growing up. And, and Shadow's always felt that there was like some kind of underlying darkness within Cade. And I love the way he words it. He's like, I'm going to show you to yourself. The darkness will escape you, Cade. You will not be able to control it. It will control you. And, you know, when, when you get to that other part where you said, you know, where Wolf was saying, he's like, just as I could feel the dark side well up in you, whatever tricks you have learned with the Sith, Cade, you must swear to me not to use them again. And Cade's like, no. And he's got a smug look on his face. I'm not a Sith, Master Sazen, just like I'm not a Jedi. The ways of the Force are just tools, and the dark side has its uses. Which gets back to that whole, you know, there is no dark side back in, in Traitor and all that. And when, you know, everything was just shook up in fandom in the EU side of things, of like, okay motive counts like what are we doing here you know and the fact that Cade's kind of like trying to bring that back and the Jedi are like whoa whoa slow down homie slow down I, I don't know I like the way it played and I thought like for Shadow it was that moment where he needed to also know that there was some control inside Cade although they're still worried about him but like like you said he goes I chose to do what I did Shadow and I chose not to kill you still under control whatever you may think and there's a level of disgust that he has, not just for the Imperial Knights, but for the Jedi themselves. I mean, like he says, I'm not a Jedi. I mean, he keeps saying that over and over again. I'm not a Jedi. And that, too, is something that's slowly building up at this point. I mean, it, we'll later get to a point where he's just finally like, okay, I can't run. My destiny's here. I'm going to step up. And I like that, that that's that constant conflict for the character. You know, he's just slowly marching towards doing what we know is right. Which brings us to the final decision of the Jedi Council, who basically are kind of dithering here in a sense, you know? You know, we're willing to explore the suggestion of an alliance with Rowanfell and Garstasi and all that. Uh, the illness of Crate may provide an opportunity uh, unseen before, but uh, the future is in turmoil, so if Kate succeeds, you know, in killing Darth Crate, will it lead to someone more powerful ruling the Sith? Could they splinter into factions, each one becoming a dark side nexus of power? Uh, will they disappear into the galaxy? Will they go on a rampage and such? Basically, we're going to let things take their course and see how it turns out. Let them squabble from within and see what happens as they whittle themselves down until it's fewer to fight, even though that could take a long time. It's very much sort of the Jedi sitting back and saying, we're going to wait and see. So they're not going to offer up any type of help to Cade on Cade's mission, but they can't really stop him, in, or at least aren't going to stop him. I guess they could, theoretically. But they're not going to stop him in doing what he's going to do, though. So he's willing to leave, and before he can, uh, it turns out that Maricia and Ganner and Antares and Aslan have talked it over. And while Maricia is staying there on her diplomatic mission to talk to the Hidden Temple Jedi Council, the other three Imperial Knights, uh, along with Shado, actually, are going to wind up going on the mission aboard the Minoc. Uh, Nat is going back to Drew and everything. Uh, and we essentially have our strike team here. We have... Cade Skywalker, Delia Blue, Jiraiya Sin, R2-D2, Aslan Ray, Antares Draco, Ganner Krieg, and Shado Vow aboard the Minoc. They are the team heading into Vector who are going to be on a mission to kill Krait. Um, it's a nice thing that really makes you feel as though, you know, big momentous events are coming up. The only thing that leaves me scratching my head is how many of those stinking Predator TIE fighters can they fit inside the Minoc? Because I never really get a good sense of the size of the Minoc relative to everything else. Um, uh, but even at that last moment, you know, there's that sense of, of you know, we'll see what's going to happen. Uh, big things are afoot, and Cade puts it quite simply. You know, he's got a plan, but his plan is not exactly deep. His plan is kill Crate, and the galaxy changes. That's it. And for those who are reading the trade paperbacks, oh, 
This is awesome. We're moving on into Vector next. Woohoo! For those who are reading them as individual issues back in the day or now, it's we now interrupt your regularly scheduled butt-kicking and assassination mission to take out Darth Crate to show you into the core with some flashbacks to the end of Claws of the Dragon and to see what the heck Darth Weirlock's been doing, which we covered, of course, in a previous episode. It was it was a, a lot of cool build-up, but it reminds me of the Marvel series where they ended one story and said, next issue, the Empire Strikes Back for the beginning of their big adaptation of Empire, and it turns out, whoop, they weren't quite ready for that yet. So they tossed in a, a filler story in between. I think it was Riders in the Void that left everybody going, wait, where's my Empire Strikes Back? Right here I, I, at the time, it's sort of a, but, they, but they're heading off to try to kill Crate. Where's my Vector? Well, and I want to know, you know, did did the princess, did the empress, did she contact R2? I love the fact that R2 is the one that let them onto the Minoc and blew his pissed. You know, some rotten little droid opened up the cargo bay doors. <laughs> He's got her hands on her hips. He's all like, you little sucker. And then, of course, you know, Shadow's like, Cade's like, what are you doing here? And Shadow's like, I'm coming to make sure you don't become Crate. Fair enough. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm down. <laughs> I like the way it works. And, it, you know, it, it goes also into that scene right before they switch to that where they're still talking and stuff. And Cade's getting irritated. He's like, how many more worlds does Crate have to kill before the Jedi cry enough? And Kakrak goes, I have seen inside your mind, Skywalker. It is not concern for the innocent that goads you. Your motive is revenge for your father's for your father's death. What if it is? No one's motivations are pure. You go ask the Mon Cal if it matters to them. And, you know, I mean, I, he's got points. I mean, his points aren't without merit, but it gets back to that theological question of, does it matter? If a Jedi is using the dark side for good, is it still bad? Uh, you know, I mean... In the books, we've gone full circle with that. You know, I mean, Vergera, she shows up, tells us, no, we don't have to worry about it, but we watch Jason fall anyway. And then they retcon her into a Sith. And it's like, oh, okay, if you touch the dark side, yeah, you're going to be falling to the dark side. So it's like, okay, is Cade now going to be the one to kind of walk both lines? Is he going to be the new chosen one? I mean, I've always hinted around about the fact that, that you know, the chosen one was a bloodline after Anakin. And that from that point on, everyone that had that bloodline miraculously through the force managed to find themselves in these key moments in galactic history. Cade is now for all intents and purposes, the chosen one of this moment. And this is his time. I, I love the way that the series overall progresses and the way that this arc just continues to just lather it on with backstory and, and just make a nice tapestry of awesomeness for these characters that you may not have cared about. I mean, I remember before Alliance came along, I didn't really care about Gar Sazi, but then after this, it's like any reference to him, I'm like, okay, yeah, what's he going to do? What are they going to do next? And you know things are starting to you know, come to a head and that people are starting to get together and alliances are being made. Kate himself said, I need alliances. And so these are happening. Now he's got his, his kill squad and they're on their way. So it's like, where do we go next? And luckily it's exciting. Or if at some point uh, R2-D2 was sitting back in the back uh, when the Jedi Council was saying they're not going to help Cade and, you know, the Jedi don't do these types of missions and stuff, R2-D2 starts tweeting and it turns out that uh, that what he said is, I've read Fire Carrier, Kirk What's your problem? Uh, <laughs> and such. Um, now, usually we would go back and kind of spin around to the covers here. I want to hit the covers and, of course, also hit um, something on the back of one of the issues uh, I'd say I'm, I think the covers of this are yeah. Uh, the first two I found kind of decent. We've got the one uh, for issue 23. It's got Rab. It's got Kate. It's got Jiraiya with a whole bunch 
of gold and such there. Because uh, friends from the past, enemies in the present, and it's basically it looks like an old picture that's got a blaster wound to it, uh, which is over Rav's head. And then you've got uh, the much cooler, in my opinion, cover, where you've got this imperial type of symbol in the background with a bunch of blaster shots through it, and in front of it, uh, Nat slash Bantha's sitting there with a the blaster, and then you've got Cade there with the lightsaber on his belt and the blaster uh, shotgun looking thing kind of slung over his shoulder saying, Enemy at the door. Those two I like. Uh, the only thing that, that bothers me about them is the fact that they can't, and, and this is the same people, it's Brad Anderson and Jan Dersima doing the covers on both of these together. Um, they can't seem to figure out what they want Cade's uh, left arm tattoo to look like because it looks different depending on which of the two covers that you're looking at there and that's something that you know it kind of tends to happen hit Cade Skywalker's tattoos Boba Fett's markings on his armor you know depending on how it's drawn and who draws it there's a tendency for the details to slightly differ uh, and then you've got 25 and 26 and 25 and 26 are just like yeah to me, I mean, the 25 shows the hidden temple. It just says the hidden temple down at the bottom. It's looking from above. It doesn't quite look right to me based on what we're seeing in the actual issue as far as what the temple looks like. It looks more like these ships are all connected together almost in flight. There's no uh, other ground there with them. It looks like some of them are on stands. doesn't quite work for me. Uh, and then the issue 26, Jedi for a new age. That's lovely and all that you're giving us Jedi for a new age, and you get these four new Jedi with their lightsabers in cool little strike and oppose type things as if they're the Powerpuff Girls or something on the cover, and it's even pink, by the way, uh, pinkish-purplish. Um, but who the hell are all these Jedi? There's four Jedi on the cover, and we never get a name for any of them, um, unless that's supposed to kind of be Rossi Toom in the front, but he doesn't look like a Bothan in the interior art. So uh, 23 and 24, I really like the cover art, especially 24, but 25 and 26, how generic could you possibly get? It was like they basically said, we don't have any ideas for a cover, so here's a general premise. Just come up with something and we'll slap it on there with some terminology and make people think that we had the slightest clue what we wanted you to draw. Yeah, I, I like 23. Uh, I like the fact that it kind of looks like it's like a locker, like the inside of the locker and that the pictures hung up on the locker. And maybe they used it for target practice on uh, Raz. The fact that Cade looks younger is cool, too, because, you know, it's friends from the past. So it's like it's a younger picture of him, because when you look at 24, he definitely looks older now. His hair is longer. He's got darker. His eyebrows are thicker and all that. The The interesting thing with 24, though, is the Imperial Cog you talk about. It's like it looks like it's like part of some machinery. Like there's some screws going down into the cogs of it. Like I, I, you almost question like, Hey, is this like functional? Is this part of a machine or something? But I, I do. I love 23, 24. Um, though I, I agree hundred percent on 26 cannot stand that cover. I don't like the fact that they use characters that aren't even in there. And the Bothan looks just whack. Like, I, I don't know, like give her to the Bothan, especially he just looks too funky for me, but 25, you know, I always liked 25, but looking at it now, I finally realized that I've been looking at it wrong. I always thought that it was the ship flying in space, kind of flying towards you. But now, when you were talking about it, I realized that this is it sitting in a lake inside the 
inside the asteroid and you're seeing the stars reflected off the lake. If you look along the edges of the, the rockets, you can see that it's sticking up out of water. I'm like, oh, because I was always curious about that. I was like, why are they showing it flying away when it's not flying away in the scene? It's it's in a, it's inside. And then when you look at the one scene, it is kind of sitting in a lake. And so, oh, okay. That made me st- suddenly look at it in a totally different light. And I like that. It's like you're you're flying down towards the hidden temple. Oh, okay. Totally just changed the way I did it. And I literally, that dawned on me while you were talking about it. I mean, I'd always thought it was an outer space shot. And it was flying into the into the asteroid, which never really made sense. Now I get why. Okay. It's looking down from it from up above. You can even see where uh, the number 25 is in that corner. There's some light kind of cascading down. Maybe that's the direction the shuttle's coming from. I'm not sure. But... I liked it because of the fact that the Hidden Temple, when you first looked at it, it was just a conglomerate of all these different ships. And this really gives you an idea of the scale of it and how it's all interconnected. I mean, you could see it before, but it didn't really give you the idea that everything was all interlaced like we get. And I believe later in one of them, they'll take the temple out and it'll start moving and stuff, which I thought was cool because you've got different ships facing different directions here. And that was always curious to me. But once it takes flight, it's like, oh, it could it could literally just light up some engines and fly off in any direction at any moment. That's kind of interesting. Huh. But yeah, for me, 26 hands down is the worst of them. It's really tough for me. I want to say I actually like 23 more because I like the coloring of it. I mean, 24 is good, but it's a little more soft in the colors. I, I do like the poses, but I really like the vibrance of 23, especially and the fact that it's got like that piratey feel with the paper burnt around the edges and all that stuff. And they've got the treasure in the midst of it all. And I, I don't know. It drives sin. He just kind of looks like, you know, like it's the classic look at what we what we stole kind of thing, you know, like the classic brag shot, unlike hunters going out and showing off what they killed. These guys are pirates. So they're showing you the loot. I don't know. I, I like the way that played. It was a really fun cover for me. So in that regard, I think 23 is definitely my fave 26. Can't stand it. And in 23, you've got Rav leaning one of his arms on Naxi Skrieger. So, you yeah. know, he, I mean, he barely even makes a shot, but I didn't want to mention, I, we mentioned this in a previous episode, my favorite Star Wars marketing campaign pretty much ever. Uh, we made a comment about that weird uh, Wizards of the Coast thing where Cade played a role in it from Legacy, and they mashed together stuff the way that you could mash together stuff with the miniatures game and whatnot. And there was that, someone tell me what's going on kind of thing at the end of it. We've got a second one now being released. There. It's a marketing campaign going back to 2008. And at this point, you, it's another weird mashup. You've got a scene in which, uh, in the Death Star, up on a, a raised level, you have Luke fighting Vader, a la Return of the Jedi, except Luke is saying, you're not my father. Down below, and this is all on the back of issue 26 if you're looking for it, down below in the lower level, you have Mandalore from KOTOR and Darth Sion from KOTOR 2, the Sith Lords, the video game, as opposed to the comic series, fighting against Jeriel and Zane Carrick from KOTOR. Uh, Mandalore says, Zane Carrick, you're a pathetic fool. Give up and die like the worm you are. To it, Zane says, it'll take more than you and your grotesque lackey to stop me, Mandalore. Scion, now that's the guy that's uh, kind of the patchwork and such out of the Sith Lords, if it's been a while since you played it. Don't trifle with me. I'm holding my ruined body together by sheer force of will. And uh, this... This other character pops out wearing a Jedi robe with a Yoda t-shirt underneath and a lightsaber. Uh, He's intense. Who are you, says Zane. I'm Todd, role-playing as a Jedi, and you are my unwitting pawns. (laughs) Uh, We see uh, Scion's arms starting to come apart, 
uh, Jeriel grabs Zane. Oh, Zane, what's happening? Hold me! And out of nowhere, Griff is there saying, I'll hold you. And we finally jump back to the background. It's Luke versus Vader. You're still not my father. And who of all people shows up but uh, at the, the right-hand side of the frame, it's Jar Jar Binks saying, Misa getting confused. With Star Wars miniatures and role-playing games, anything's possible. Mix it up with your favorite miniatures from across the sagas or create your own character for role-playing adventures limited only by your own imagination. Star Wars, miniatures and role-playing games, which is the coast. Uh, it just, it's, I love this marketing campaign. This one, not nearly as cool as the other one. Although I love Griff's, I'll hold you, because it's perfectly in character and the fact that they actually brought the fan into the mix um, since he's the one doing the role-playing. It's genius kind of marketing because for anyone who's into the eu they're looking at this going what the heck is happening aha when you get to the end of it i love this marketing campaign well and what they should have put is like a little asterisk at the bottom for this one because this one's for the role-playing game whereas the other one was for the uh, miniatures well this one's for both is that it's role-playing and oh, miniatures uh, yeah, just, but what they should have put is a little asterisk. This role-playing game, Knights of the Old Republic, that catalog is going to disappear, and you're never going to be able to find it ever, ever again. Get it while you can. Like, ah, if they would have said that when I was sitting there looking at the Jedi training manual on that one, I would have got that one. I came back, and it was gone, and I've never been able to find it again. You can't find it for, like, less than 150 bucks. Nope. I wound up, up selling mine at one point because I, I, I looked out into finding it at Cotton Carolinas one year. Um, so I would say that, I mean, for, for a story leading into... Vector, as we said, this and KOTOR's stories leading into Vector certainly give you a sense to expect something big coming up uh, in relatively near future episodes here, folks. You're going to hear us talk about Vector, and for those who want to read up on Vector before we do, so you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about and get involved and send in feedback and that sort of thing, uh, Knights of the Old Republic issues 25, 26, 27, and 28 make up its part of Vector, and then Dark Times... It's just issues 11 and 12, and those together are in the Vector Volume 1 trade paperback, which kind of confused some folks because uh, it's basically an, a volume of Knights of the Old Republic mixed with the volume of Dark Times. And then for Rebellion, it's issues 15 and 16, the last two of that series, and for Legacy, it's going to be issues 28 through 31, which together, Rebellion and Legacy, you can find in the Vector Volume 2 uh, trade paperback. You can also find at least the KOTOR part in uh, Knights of the Old Republic Volume 2 Omnibus. You can find the Dark Times part in uh, Dark Times Volume 1. You can find the Rebellion part in the Omnibus at War with the Empire Volume 2. Uh, and the Legacy part has not been collected yet, but I believe is being collected later this year in one of those uh, uh, nice Legacy collected volumes. So uh, we're basically going to be looking at a grand total of 12 issues coming up. Four from KOTOR, four from Legacy, and in the middle, two each from Dark Times and Rebellion, including the final Rebellion arc, which should be interesting to see. Of course, we do still have our contests going on at this point. So, uh, first off, what contests are still open out there at this point? Um, if you want to win yourself a copy of Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void, you need to get that entry in by February 7th. Uh, that may or may not be done by the time this episode comes out because it's it's set to come out on February 7th. So, you know, just kind of take that with a grain of salt there. That one may be wrapped up. We've mentioned it previously on the show several times, so it shouldn't be that big of a surprise to anybody. If you want to win a signed copy of my novel, Greater Good, we're giving away two copies of those. One has already gone out uh, to Jared out there. We have a second copy. You can enter to win that one by February 14th. 
We also have a second signed Equals and Opposites comic pack. That's my story from Star Wars Tales 21, separated out by itself as an exclusive comic to that pack with the uh, Kyle Katarn figure and Yuzhan Vong figure. Uh, that is sealed up at this point, but I can sign it, open it up and sign it however the person who wins it wants to do it. To enter to win that one, you can enter by February 21st. The way you enter, same way. It is, uh, you send us an email to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. In the body of the email, you give us your name and mailing address. For a greater good, you want to put the subject line greater good to. And to enter for uh, equals and opposites, it's either equals and opposites to, or you can put comic pack to. Either way, uh, we will take those for that one. So far, for our winners, we've had uh, Drew Nick won Mercy Kill, Jared Haltard, if I'm saying that correctly, won uh, Greater Good, or the first copy of Greater Good, uh, Daniel Contreras won Crucible, Glenn Stein won the two signed copies of Wars of the Battle of Phobos Preludes, uh, Rick Weibel has won Scoundrels, and now uh, Sandro George has won the first Equals and Opposites signed comic pack. So congratulations, Sandro. Um, that'll be coming out to you very soon. Uh, and yes, I'm going to do the thing with the giveaways of the cards, but I'm still working out the details on that, so we'll deal with that once all of these giveaways have finally wrapped up. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing in the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com, under the tab of the same name, Second Airborne Division. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page, at Films, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's the best way to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. That's right, and of course, you can already start getting ready for Rebels Roundtable that is coming. Uh, you can follow Rebels Roundtable, the upcoming show about Star Wars Rebels, uh, at Rebels Round on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable as well to get it on Facebook. Uh, RebelsRoundtable.com will eventually lead you there right now. It just points, of course, over to StarWarsReport.com. Uh, and I guess uh, of recent stuff in mind, you might check out uh, the YouTube channel that I've got up there. Uh, from the Star Wars Library is finally back with some new episodes. Hadn't been any new episodes since November, um, but finally we do have uh, new episodes on the different Jedi Prince books, Glove of Darth Vader on through uh, Prophets of the Dark Side, and assuming they finally stop with the content ID fair use craziness, I'll be putting up some more videos uh, from the home video collection there. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's a year with no questions asked. The man is not going to ask you anything. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. 
and Nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Mark will finally make his way through the rest of Razor's Edge so we can talk about it soon. I know that book is a slog. <laughs> you know, I, that's funny because I was pondering those odds myself. I'm like, you know, we may actually be able to get done with this after Vector. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.